the transmitter. All right, welcome to Synaptic, Spectrum's podcast that looks at the research, the people, and the challenges of the autism research space, and sometimes the neuroscience field more broadly. My name is Brady Huggett. I host this show, and thank you for joining. Okay, let's go way back, all the way to 1773, which is even before the United States declared its independence from Britain. Let's go that far back. On October 12th in 1773, in Williamsburg, Virginia, the first mental hospital in the colonies was founded. It was originally called the Public Hospital for Persons of Insane and Disordered Minds, and it was set on less than four acres of land and placed a good distance back from the nearest road, the kind of warning that this was not a place for casual visitors. Family members or friends, or sometimes the sheriff, would bring in new patients to occupy the 24 rooms, which were called cells. Chains and shackles were involved. There was no doctor on site, no nurse, no recreation room. The people of Williamsburg referred to it as a madhouse, or bedlam, and then later it was also called the Eastern Lunatic Asylum. So by today's standards, or really maybe any standards, this was a grim place. But it began to improve. Since its founding, it had been overseen by members of the Galt family. And in 1841, that became John Galt. John, however, was an actual physician, and he resided on site. He was the first physician to do so, actually, instead of just visiting. He understood that the mentally ill were human beings with emotions, capable of complex thought, and he treated them as such. He installed carpentry and shoemaking shops, which gave the residents tasks and a kind of pride of employment. And he brought in recreational games like cards and dominoes, and he installed a library. And that was a key shift. The hospital grew in size over the years, and treatment continued to improve as society and, and the medical community gained a better understanding of mental illness. Today it's referred to as Eastern State Hospital. But most importantly for this podcast, more than 200 years after its founding, right around the year 2000, Carla Mazewski frequented the Eastern State Hospital as a college student. She was at William & Mary then, doing her honors thesis on schizophrenia. She spent time interviewing patients at Eastern, and the things she saw, felt, and experienced there changed her trajectory. And by the time she graduated, she knew that she wanted to study psychology. That's today's guest, Carla Mazewski. In this podcast, we talked about her experience at Eastern State Hospital. And we talked about her work around emotion dysregulation in autistic people. And we talked about her journey to the University of Pittsburgh, where she's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and the Nancy J. Minshaw Chair in Autism Research. And we talked about her current research into suicidality in autistic adults. All of that coming in the next hour. So I interviewed Carla in Pittsburgh in late May. It was sunny in the mid-70s, almost perfect weather. The Pitt campus is located in the Oakland neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And we met in Carla's office. I put the mics across her desk and we settled in. So let's start here, where she and I are talking about her childhood in Connecticut. This is your episode of Synaptic with Carla Mazewski, starting right now. I have this feeling that 
You didn't actually grow up in Pittsburgh. No. Are you from, where are you from? Connecticut. Oh, Connecticut. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, good. I'm learning something already. Um, <laughs> I mean, I saw that, I saw where you had done your undergrad. So where, where in Connecticut? I grew up in Easton. It's like a small town in Fairfield County. Yeah. But I haven't been back there since I was 18. Oh, yeah. So it's been a while. Were you, um, did you have any idea what you wanted to do when you were young like that? When I was in high school? Or even earlier? And I mean, well, when I was younger, I thought I wanted to be Paula Abdul. <laughs> of course. Not a bad idea, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, um, no, in high school, I thought maybe I was going to go into like pre-med. Uh-huh. Um, or medicine, and then I also wondered about like um, marine biology. Huh. And then in college is when I started to focus on psychology. Were you the marine biology? Were you? Did you grow up on the coast at all in Connecticut? No. I mean, relatively close, but no, not really. Not like we were there that much. I just thought it was interesting. And the the same thing for the pre med, because you know, doctor's a good job to have. Or or did you actually have an interest in helping people or medicine? I mean, I had an interest in helping people still, like, stayed in that line, I would say. Um, and, I don't know, it just seemed like it would could be a good fit for my skills. Mm. But Were you good in the sciences in high school? Yeah. Yeah. Science and, so, and math. Why, uh, why Connecticut? Like, why was your family there? Was it a long history of people living in Connecticut? or? My mom did grow up in Connecticut, in Stanford. Huh. Um, and then my dad grew up in Rhode Island. Hmm. In Providence area, he's yeah. 100% Italian. Oh yeah, um, and then I don't know. They lived there. They lived there until until I graduated, and then my dad moved to Virginia, where and like lived apart from my mom for two years, doing long distance while my sister finished high school, and then then they moved to Virginia also. Uh-huh. So we okay. both had like in-state tuition for William and Mary. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Do you know how your parents met? I'm trying to think. I feel like they met at a party, and they were both skiing in, like, their ski club. That's what I think. In Connecticut or something? No. Yeah, in in Connecticut. Yeah. Okay, so you grew up, you're a New Englander, sort of, right? Sort of, yeah. Yeah. And then you're thinking about, I don't know, you're good in the sciences in high school. You're thinking about maybe medicine, because what else, you know, if you're good in sciences, what else would your career be, right? Mm -hmm. You think you might want to help people. And then um, where did you look at schools? Well, that actually is an interesting story because I, I was a good student um, and like well-rounded doing a lot of different things. So I looked, I was like aiming sort of high. I wanted to go into the mid-Atlantic region um, mostly. I just liked the idea of it for some reason. So I was looking mostly at Duke, mm. UVA, and William & Mary. And then I also applied to University of Michigan. Mm. Um, and I got into University of Michigan early before I had heard about the others. So then I did not apply to any safety schools after that. And then I got... So you were thinking, no matter... I mean, I I I can go to a good school no matter what. Michigan. Yeah, Michigan is like an awesome school. It would be great to go there. But then I didn't wind up getting into any of the other three. And then Michigan was really expensive out of state. And Uh then, you know, there's like a little window when you can't get financial aid if your family makes too much but yeah anyway long story short so I wound up taking a year abroad and I went to um, Belgium the Flemish speaking part of Belgium for a year as an exchange student before before college so you never enrolled in Michigan no I didn't enroll Uh uh-huh okay in the end um, it was too expensive yeah 
So, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to just go somewhere else. I decided to do the exchange student thing. We had hosted an exchange student in high school. So it was always something I had thought about doing. So it sort of prompted me to do that. So I did that in between high school and college. Where, where, uh, where was the exchange student from? Um, The one we hosted was from the Netherlands. Hmm. I'm just curious, like any reason why your parents did that? Because it's a great thing to do or... I mean, we had been involved in, it was the AFS is the program. We had been involved in the program um, doing other things like throughout high school and growing up and I think just a good thing to do. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's sort of like then your children, meaning you, mm-hmm. have this exposure to someone from a foreign country, which is also useful in the house and everything right. else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you had, you already knew kind of what that was like. Right. And then why did you choose Belgium? Well, um, since I decided kind of late, like, and I was already going to be 18 when I traveled, um, not all of the, ex- the countries allowed AFS students who were 18 already, so that narrowed it down. Mm-hmm. And then there were some that were ruled out because of too much political unrest that my parents weren't comfortable with me going. And then um, Belgium was left, and it's like kind of in the middle of Europe, and yep. cool for traveling, yep. and um, near the Netherlands where we had the exchange student from so it seemed like a good fit this was when we didn't have I didn't have email yet yeah. no cell phones so yeah. it was very different like going abroad for a year basically corresponding by snail mail right um, okay so, so you've got this year you're thinking well I'm, I'm not gonna go to college I don't want to just sit around that's yeah and the other thing that I really liked different from like the medicine or biology idea was um, art and I was really mm. into art and drawing and painting so I did when I was in Belgium it was an art school but it didn't count it was like redoing a senior year in a specialized art school so you lived with a host family yeah you attended school every day at this art school yeah well that's kind of amazing yeah it was cool I mean it was everything was in Flemish too so So did you pick how much language did you pick up? I was fluent by the end of the year I mean well earlier than that Mm. My, my host family stopped speaking English after I forget how long they had like a period of time when they were going to do it and then stop, which forced me, I think. I mean, given that you were sort of planning on college, you must not have had that much time to crash course Flemish. How did you pick that up? No, and I don't think any of the other exchange students who were there that year really came in knowing any Flemish either. You, you start with one week of like language camp that AFS runs, and that's really cool because it was exchange students from all over the mm. world. So everyone who's in Flemish, I mean, in the Flemish part of Belgium, basically, was there together. And so that sort of kickstarts it. And then it's just like the idea of immersion. Like you're just, like all the exchange students really by the end were fluent in Flemish. I mean, now if you asked me to, it would be embarrassing. You can't speak it anymore. No, No. but I I can understand some of it. Or when we um, actually in in SAR, the International Society for Autism Research meeting was in the Netherlands. Mm about four years ago. And I, and I could remember it pretty quickly once mm. I was back, like understanding, but still not speaking as much. Mm. And you could order at a restaurant, that kind of thing? Not I either. could read the menu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I wouldn't okay. embarrass myself too much. But. So you spend a year in Belgium. Yeah. And then that ends. And then, yeah, then, then I, at that point, like when I went to Belgium, my dad moved to Virginia because still I really wanted to be like in that area and then and I had been waitlisted at William and Mary um, and then it didn't get in so I had um, reapplied to William and Mary 
um, as a state resident at mm. that point um, and got in. And so that n- n- number that one, was, your your sort of application is probably bettered by now I've been a foreign exchange student for a year. That's yeah. you know, something notable. And then also you, you would have in-state tuition. Right. Yeah. So did you only apply to William & Mary? I think I only applied to William & Mary because I got in there. Huh. And was at that point then it was my top choice. It's like if you hadn't gotten in there, what would you have, well, you know, your career would have been really different. I, yeah, my career would have been really different. Yeah, because I had several like key experiences while I was at William Mary that led to me doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, but I probably would have looked again at some of the same schools I applied to. Mm. So you get into William and Mary, and yeah. you still think you're like pre-med at this point? I started out thinking I was going to do biology, psychology, double major, mm. and then... I was taking all of those classes in the summer. I took classes because my dad was there, so I stayed there year-round. Um, and I took organic chemistry in the summer. Brutal. Organic one and two. And then I decided not to be a biology major <laughs> yep. and just focus on psychology. And I really loved psychology. Mm. My school in high school was smaller, so we didn't really have a lot of exposure um, to psychology classes. And so... Um, I think that after that freshman year, and especially in the summer, then it just became clear that was what I wanted to do. So, so your freshman year, as you were going in, though, you were somehow already thinking about psychology. I think still along the like idea of like helping, you know, helping profession. Um, but and I always w- thought it was interesting. You did, yeah. yeah. This idea of what's going on in the mind and analyzing it, and yeah. yeah. Okay, so. You're like, I guess I'm not going to be a doctor. They weeded you out, as they say, with your organic chemistry, I right? Think Argo weeded me out, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not my cup so, of tea. So then you're like, okay, well, maybe I can apply this sort of, you know, I want to help in the psychology field. Yeah. And so how did you begin to do that? Um, well, I did an honors thesis um, to get research experience, and that was working with a man named, um, a professor named Glenn Sheehan, and he focused on schizophrenia. Hmm. So um, my honors thesis was on schizophrenia, and I went to, um, there's a hospital called Eastern State Hospital in Williamsburg. It's the oldest psychiatric hospital in the country, actually. Whoa. Um, and I interviewed um, patients who were there for a primary diagnosis of, like, schizophrenia spectrum um, for my honors thesis, and that was, that was a really, I loved the whole research process, the experience. Um, so that was one thing that really, I think, got me more and more interested in it. Um, so, but you you applied for that? You, you must have seen, you had an interest when you applied. You thought, well, that looks like an interesting thing to do. Well, yeah, I, I guess I connected connected with him thinking it would be interesting to work with him and um, learn more about kind of severe mental illness yeah. and get some, like, actual experience. Um, and then... I really love that. I also was kind of interested in like the idea of forensic psychology. Mm -hmm. And so I also volunteered at that same hospital. I don't even know what the technical term is now, but at the time it was called not guilty by reason of insanity for people who were um, there who had been convicted of major crimes. Um, So they they had been convicted, they'd been charged with a crime. Charged with a crime and then found not guilty by reason of insanity. And then sent there. And then sent there. Yeah, so huh. I worked closely with a psychi- the psychiatrist who overlaid that specialized like inpatient unit for, I don't know how long, a long time. The, the interviewing of people with, um, I guess, just schizophrenia, right? Mm-hmm. 
what does that look like? Was that just, this is for your honors thesis? Yeah. So are you meant to interview a bunch of people and then come up with some sort of uh, theory on the brain or schizophrenia or yeah. something like that? It was like kind of like a smaller version of what you might do for like a master's thesis or a dissertation where you had like a research question and a whole plan. So the focus was on um, language and language processing. So um, I was interviewing them and then analyzed their speech patterns mm. with with some programs and it was focused on you know different patterns of speech and things like that. The interviews are based on their history or did you have a set you know set of questions you're supposed to ask them and then? I had a set of questions yeah. Oh that must have been fascinating. It was fascinating. What did did you learn from that? I mean I don't even there's I feel like I can't even remember like a key finding that was so interesting I just remember the experience of being on the unit um, being so pivotal and I mean I remember specific things like I don't know why it stuck with me like one time getting like punched in the back but I think that's something that has followed me through with my like some of my interest in autism actually um, just like some of the behaviors you mean you got punched in the back yeah I got punched in the back oh, yeah, like I remember like some of these interviews it was just really were like emotionally charged or intense or um, just like the environment of being on the unit was yeah. really yeah. um, interesting for me. Well, you were, you were punched in the back by the person you were interviewing or someone came? Another patient. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, so I mean, you were 19 at this point? Yeah. I mean, Roughly. It's a little scary to yeah. be doing that. It was a little scary, but I, I felt like I took it as like a challenge. Like I was kind of fascinated and trying to learn more. So. Okay. So this, this happens when you're like 19 and mm-hmm. suddenly you think, all right, I want to, I want to do psychology. Yeah. Yeah. And then what what about the forensics? So that was like kind of around the same time. Then I started also doing that other volunteering in the hospital. Um, and then I thought I wanted to get more experience with that side of like, if, if I was going to go into forensics, like other aspects of like, I don't know, violence prevention is not the right terminology, but other sides of that and so I volunteered with the Williamsburg Police Department uh-huh. which was another interesting experience I like pretended to be a hostage when they did SWAT team training very different from what I'm doing now so they would but you volunteered as a, like a like a psychologist no, you, no I was just like helping out like oh, just I to see. help out and get like more exposure to like the police process what that basically looks like. yeah yeah and they said okay we're gonna do a, an enactment today of a hostage situation you be the hostage yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> random experiences but um and you're thinking all right well maybe what I can do is apply psychology to um, a way to prevent crime almost if you can get yeah. people into treatment maybe that'll be a reduction in crime right wow. I think that was what I was thinking at that time but then I felt like I needed more like clinical experience to be able to apply to graduate school. Um, and that's where like my autism interest came, or that's where my first like exposure to autism what happened there? came about. I was just, I was taking some classes in the School of Education. There was like a flyer posted that said, do you want to help make a miracle? And I was like, that sounds like me. <laughs> and it was just like this picture of a cute, really really cute little boy with like the biggest blue eyes I mean I can actually picture the poster in my head still and so I I called to find out what it was about and it turned out to be a nine-year-old 
boy on the spectrum who's completely non-speaking and they were work- looking for someone to like work with him um, uh-huh. one-on-one so the the poster do you want to make a miracle that didn't say anything about psychology or it, or it did no well it said like do you want to help work work with this boy so it you didn't knew, say anything okay. about psychology in particular okay. but it was like working one-on-one with a, a kid at the time they said you know special needs uh-huh they didn't even know that it was autism no, he was diagnosed, actually, uh-huh. and I, I should have looked up. I forget what the rates were back then, but it was still when, when things were, like, thought to be very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, you know, more typical of those who were diagnosed with autism back then. Um, right, so like, he's not speaking at n- nine. Yeah. Which means there's there's probably no intervention early on at all. Not much. Yeah. And then he was getting a lot of intervention at nine. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, we worked with him on just, like, trying to have a reliable like yes no response he would dart into the street so we worked on like safety walking Mm -hmm. outside or like knowing like what room is the kitchen um and things like that but i really enjoyed my time working with him how did you know how to do that had you already had i was like trained under somebody so she sort of like told me what to do. All right, we're gonna try to today. We're gonna try to focus on this. No, stop darting. Number one. Number two. This is where the kitchen is. Yeah, like we had a very specific like treatment plan and goals, and so I knew every day what I was supposed to be working on. Mm. How long did that go on? I worked with him an entire summer, and then my entire senior year, and then I started working with some other um, younger children okay, on the so spectrum. Okay, so well over a year with him. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and this was your first introduction to autism, and I think it sounds like this, you gra- you began to gravitate to it. Instead yeah. of forensic psychology, instead of schizophrenia or crime, yeah. it's more Yeah, it was like, like my, I, I like felt like I, it was my, my thing. I mm. don't know, I really connected with him. He was, um, he had a lot of difficulties, and I think some of the ex- specific experiences with him also sort of stuck with me. Um, like he had a lot of behaviors, um, spitting or aggression of all kinds. Um, and at the time, you know, I was, again, I was young, mm-hmm. like, so I was really doing- 20 or 21 or Yeah, and I was, tre- you know, doing what was the treatment plan. Like, so if he had a behavior, then the person who was above me who had a master's, I think she would, like evaluate and say, okay, this is how we're gonna handle it. Um, So like, for example, for the spitting, what he would do is he would spit, like pool spit in his hand and like put it on my face. I mean, and like you could see it coming or he would just reach out and gently do it and you would know this was gonna happen. No, I could see it coming. Uh Um, But she determined she thought it was for attention. So like the plan was to ignore it. Got it. And that was like kind of the plan for most of his behaviors. and. Basically, what would happen is it would work, and his behavior would go away. So if the spitting it. would go away, but then something else would start, like, maybe less pleasant, like fecal smearing. And so, I mean, I think that experience really stuck with me because I always felt like we were missing something with him. And, you know, my big area of research now is on emotion regulation right. and emotion dysregulation. And, I mean, I think, clearly, I think back, like, this clearly he was like distressed and what you know we could get rid of the behavior but we weren't really addressing the root of the issue Um, so it's not okay so so their thinking is it's attention seeking yeah ignore it and it's going to go away and it did work 
mm-hmm. right? But, yeah, it worked. But yeah. also you're but. thinking that maybe it's not about getting attention because you already had, he already had your attention. He's sitting right in front of you. Right. And you're like, maybe it's something else that is causing this activity. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And did you talk so. about that with your, your mentor at the time? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a men- I mean, my I didn't have a mentor, you know, in college who was focused on autism. Really, I'm sorry. like the, but, the, the but woman the, who was saying, you know, yeah. this is what we're going to do today. Yeah. yeah, I did, and I think you know, at the time, well, I didn't know. Yeah, you know, I don't have much. I didn't have any credentials right. behind right. behind me, and like on face value, like the behaviors were stopping, or you know. The particular behavior in question would stop. So. So this was just something in your mind. You're thinking, I don't know if we got. I don't know if we're getting this right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And you're still. This is your senior year. Mm-hmm. All right. What happens after that? Um, then I applied to graduate school, and um, you know, I, even though I was loving the autism experience, I still was thinking. I mean, I still on my resume, I look like a perfect match for like violence prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, so I matched at Virginia Commonwealth University with um, Al Farrell, a big violence prevention researcher. So it was exciting. I got into graduate school right out of college and went there. I did my master's thesis on violence prevention, um, but I wasn't, like, happy oh, enough or not fulfilled by it. And I just kept feeling like I was missing the autism piece. Huh. And I was able to seek out Donald Oswald, who was at Virginia treatment center for children at the time. Uh, he was a psychologist and doing a lot of autism work and clinical evaluations. And um, he was willing to take me on to work with him like for clinical um, hours. And then I just decided it was really where I wanted to be. And my primary advisor, um, Dr. Farrell was supportive mm. and I started, so my dissertation was on autism. Mm. Um, and I pretty much focused whenever I could on autism after that point. This, um, the, when you're doing your master's in violence prevention, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, my master's thesis was looking a lot at like parenting and like community. Oh, even further down the line, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it was with existing data and like, you know, looking at different relationships of how things um, contribute to. So it's like, it's useful, but it wasn't your heart Right. Yeah. Okay. And you were like, you kept thinking about this, I don't know, this nine-year-old boy and how that had been. So that must have obviously been very rewarding for you, the nine-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. I hmm. still wonder about him because now he's an adult. <laughs> but have you tried to find him? I have not been able to find him, but I would love to know what he's up to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about his parents? Yeah, I haven't been able to. Yeah. yeah. You looked. You've actually looked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, so then, so you roll that master's into a PhD at VCU? Yeah, the program was it was a doctoral program that I was accepted into. Oh, I see. But it's okay. just a stage where you do the master's and then yep. the dissertation. Yeah. Okay, so, so then when you, your plan, all right, so let's talk about this. Then your plan when you get the PhD is to be your professor someplace, I guess. Yeah. And But focus on autism. Yeah. All right, so what? how did you, what happened then? Well, um... So in clinical psychology, you have to do an internship, mm-hmm. a pre-doctoral internship, which is like like medicine where you have to match somewhere. So you do interviews and then you match. Um, and so I matched at Brown, which I was very excited about. They have great autism work there. Providence. Um, yeah. Providence. Family history. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, so um, the only glitch was I had just gotten married to um, my husband, Matt, who 
had just taken the bar exam in Virginia. Uh, he's a lawyer. Uh -huh. So um, we had to spend that year apart. Um, not ideal for the first year of yeah. marriage, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like after that, my goal was to get back to where he was. So then I came after internship back to Virginia. Um, and at, the at that time, um, there was an opportunity for a T32, like a research-focused postdoctoral fellowship at the Virginia Institute for Psychiatric and Behavioral Genetics. Uh-huh, okay. Um, so that's what I did my postdoc year on. Um, but because I was in clinical, I needed additional clinical hours to get licensed. So I, I went back to also working with Donald Oswald at Virginia Treatment Center for Children and had the opportunity to meet Susan White then, who was um, at the time an assistant professor with a career development award. And I started working closely with her. And she's like still to this day, one of my long time, mm. longest collaborators. We just got a big multi-site clinical trial together. So that I think, even though I didn't really stick with any of the psychiatric and behavioral genetics piece, like that year was really, really had an important impact on my career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then... But so your husband's practicing at this point in Virginia. And yeah, he was at a law you, firm. Did you have, you started a family yet? No, no. not a dog. Okay. You had a dog. Yeah, so, well, that's, that's how you start, <laughs> A right? very right. needy German short hair pointer, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but sweet. Yeah. Um, and no, no children yet. Um, and then a job posting opened up at the University of Pittsburgh for, they were looking for someone in pediatrics who would do like half-time clinical, half-time research, and I thought that sounded perfect. Perfect, right. Um, and it was probably one of the only places that a year after taking the bar exam, my husband would have retaken the bar exam because um, he grew up in Pittsburgh oh, until he was 12. Oh, we did. Okay, so all right. People in Pittsburgh are like usually diehard Pittsburghers forever. That is 100% true, so, and I, I don't know why that is. I, I think it's like it's not too big of a city and the people are really into the sports team. So there's a lot of like community community. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. Everybody that I've ever met from Pittsburgh will tell me how great it is. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a side story, but like I think outside of Pittsburgh, there's still sometimes a thought that it's maybe a city past its heyday almost. Right. Because, it you know, it was the steel capital and everything else. And that no longer is the case. I don't think they've quite figured out what UPMC has done, what Carnegie Mellon has done and oh, how yeah. much the, the city sort of buoyed itself around healthcare. Yeah, I think it's totally an underrated city. I, I, I mean, I, it's I awesome to live in Pittsburgh and yeah, tons of healthcare, tons of like tech. Um, so. So you're a convert. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now I am a diehard Pittsburgher. <laughs> I don't know. How, it's actually really funny that that happened because my husband did grow up here. His parents moved to Florida, but his uncle's still here and we came when we were dating, we came here for a wedding, and it was fun. We went to a Steelers game. Mm. It was like snowing. Mm. It was like this perfect experience. And on the drive back, he was like, "Do you think we could ever move to Pittsburgh?" And I was like, "95 percent, no." Wow. <laughs> and then here we are today, and I'll probably be here, I don't know, forever. I don't well, know. yeah, but so when the yeah. job comes up, you'd been 95 percent no, but suddenly yeah, a but it was like chance. a good fit for him because he w would have been excited to go there. Perfect job. Yeah, and my main my main reason for saying that was the weather. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So you, obviously you get the job. So I got that job. Yeah, and so then, um, so then I was an assistant professor in pediatrics, and um, I was in that job for three years, and half of my time was spent doing 
diagnostic evaluations, uh-huh. which I enjoyed. It's but it's a lot of report writing, and like for autism. Uh, all yeah, all autism, all, so like, or like questions of autism. You do the ADOS. almost exclusively. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then. When I started that job, the child development unit where I, where I was working was like children of all ages, mm-hmm. but like everywhere had really long waiting lists. And so the approach to handle that was to like reduce the age range um, maximum. Right. So we started seeing like a maximum of age seven, I think. But what I really enjoyed and sort of specialized in the most, I would say, was teenagers. Hmm. Um, so that was part of the reason I started to think about doing something different um, than because, staying in pediatrics. Because your favorite part, which is about seven and above, you're saying? Yeah, they, they sort of started seeing out. only seven and under, so yep. no more like teenagers. So then I was at that time starting like applying for grants also um, and had gotten a grant looking at like psychiatric diagnoses in teens. Mm-hmm. Um, as compared to like, based on structured interview, as compared to like what they'd been diagnosed with kind of across their life to that point. And um, so then there became a little more of a disconnect between my research interests and the clinical. And it's 50% clinical is really not 50% clinical anyway. It's like, mm. like, like full time. Oh, really? I mean, just like clinical work, you know, for me, it, it became hard to really balance the two. And I really wanted to spend more time on research. So I... But you also you also had you also taught no, no oh no okay. no so in the medical part. school it was just it was just um, clinical work and research yeah. okay. I mean teaching in terms of like supervising um, yeah like, but not like trainees but not formal coursework or, yeah. or okay. anything no so what did you start to think about then so then I also applied for a career development award which is like a kind of NIH award where they're really basically investing in your potential as an investigator. And then you have like training goals, but it's also tied to a research plan. And it can really, the the benefit of it doesn't come with a lot of money for the research project, but it comes with money to protect your salary Mm -hmm. for research um, time up to 100% Mm. or, you know, down to 75%. Um, So I applied for one of those grants. and while it was under review, I just had an opportunity working with Nancy Minshew, who was here at the psychiatry department, and at the time she had an Autism Center of Excellence Award and needed more psychology support for her studies. So I basically took a pay cut to come over into psychiatry at that point, fully funded on her projects until um, my grant came through and mm-hmm. I did get that career development award which allowed me to then focus on building kind of my own you know program of research. Did that feel like a risk? It did feel like a risk I guess um, but it just felt like I don't know I, I never really questioned it that much because it was the opportunity to do more of what I wanted to yeah. do um, yeah. and be in a department really focused on the kind of research I wanted to be doing um, so it just felt like an opportunity more than a risk, yeah, even though, the right move. of course, the little downside of salary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, your husband has a salary, too. So Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. That's fortunate. Yeah. I feel like, so it seems like this is, we're about to start talking about emotion dysregulation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Sure. We'll start telling about that research. <laughs> okay. So then um, 
My career development award, though, was focused on neuroimaging. It was an fMRI study. Uh Um, At the time, it seemed like that made sense to do, get training in that area. It's not something I had exposure to before, but then in the end, I didn't really enjoy it that much. Um, Just not really, um, for me, like directly applied or clinical enough. Yeah, it's not hands-on enough. Um, right. So after, so as part of, like during that process, I also applied um, for a Slifka Ritva Award for Innovation and Autism Research at, um, through INSAR, and that was to, ve- to develop a measure of emotion dysregulation. Because one of the things I noticed in my imaging study was like, we weren't able to capture the variability in emotion dysregulation well enough to map it on to whatever we were finding in the brain Mm. imaging. Um, And so that was really like a turning point for me because it gave me pilot data to then get a big NIH R01 to develop a measure called the Emotion Dysregulation Inventory and collect like huge amounts of data on emotion dysregulation and really start to get all into that area and also really into measure development which is another thing I've like continued to do even when I was back like on internship where you know I rotated on a day treatment program on an inpatient program and you see so much severe emotion dysregulation but then I would turn to the literature like what what should I be doing for these patients and people really weren't talking about emotion dysregulation and autism as much the focus was more on the core like diagnostic symptoms or sometimes from the angle of like you know some focus on like psychiatric co-occurring conditions but which i've definitely done some of that work too um but i prefer the emotion dysregulation angle because it's just it's not an it's the lines between what you know different psychiatric diagnoses are kind of blurry and i just feel like we get a lot more out of looking at emotion dysregulation Mm. as a process um yeah so at the time like really there wasn't much happening in that area so how did you go about it's called the edi right how Mm -hmm. how did you go about setting this up this sort of um i mean it's a survey Mm -hmm. yeah how did you figure out which questions to to go after that get you the information that's most meaningful for this yeah i followed there's there's some established measure development standards from like something called Promise, which is an NIH initiative focused on patient-reported outcome measures. So luckily, one of the things I love about the psychiatry department is Pitt, at Pitt is there's like an expert in everything in mm. our department, I feel like. So there was an original Promise PI, Paul Polconis here, and I was able to connect with him um, through that project. And we followed pretty closely their process. Um, So like doing a big review of what's out there in the literature and what existing measures, but then included a lot of, I think, my clinical experience. So some of the items we wrote for the EDI were like really almost word for word, like ways Mm. parents have described their children's emotions to me. And then we were trying to make it something that could be used across a spectrum. So avoiding things that, you know, would require a child to tell you what they're feeling. Right. Um, and then, yeah, then we like... Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, so sorry, that, go ahead. That means because if, if some children are nonverbal, they mm. wouldn't be able to participate in this survey. Yeah, right, it. yeah. Okay. And we wanted it to be something that could be used like really across a spectrum. Yeah. So, 
Um, and then we interviewed parents, because um, it, it started as a parent report measure um, for children, and then asked them to like think aloud as they're answering the items and say it back in their own wording. And I think all of that really helped make sure it was like really getting at what we thought it was getting at. And then by that time, I was also doing a lot of other research also with um, Matt Siegel, um, the Autism Inpatient Collection. Um, so I had access to um, a large psychiatric inpatient sample too. So when we then evaluated the measure, we included people from that inpatient study, plus like a big registry um, called Interactive Autism Network, kind of a predecessor to Simon's Spark initiative. Yep. Um, so we had both like the representation from like a general community kind of professional diagnosis sample and an inpatient sample. So we had the real range of like, um, from like no emotion dysregulation to the most severe forms. And I think that really helped make mm. sure we were, you know, then capturing the items that are most distinguishing. Right. So then you had this, uh, how big was the data set? I mean, I'm sure it's growing, but yeah. Um, we had like 1300 something. And then I think, no, tell me where I'm wrong, but then I think, you know, okay, so you've done this survey and you started to gather this data. And then the next logical step is almost, well, what, what can be done with this data? What might be done for treatment? Mm -hmm. And that's where your, your EASE program came in. Yeah, so EASE is our emotion dysregulation intervention with um, Kelly Beck, Caitlin Connor, and Susan White. And um, it really was informed by the EDI because um, we really tried to target those specific things that we learned are most characteristic of emotion dysregulation in autism. Um, and we were fortunate enough to get a DOD like clinical trial award. Mm. Um, first, I guess we had like other funding to develop basically a manual. Um, so that was actually, I glossed over that. That was a very long process actually <laughs> of a lot of writing revisions um, and then a lot of input from parents from, um, there's an autistic psychiatrist who I still collaborate with closely, who like read the whole manual, gave us a ton of feedback, and we really iteratively developed it basically. And yeah. then this was like our treatment manual of the EASE program. So um, that, but we all developed that together. And then we piloted it with teenagers. Then we got the DOD randomized control trial award and we just finished that, um, and we're analyzing the data right now. You are. Like, literally right now. <laughs> yeah, like when I leave this office, you're gonna go yeah. back to analyzing it. Yeah. I mean, can you talk um, about any of the findings in a low level? Yeah, I mean, so I can definitely talk about what we saw, and I think what, we, what I know, or what I expect, is that both groups are gonna improve. So we looked at um, ease, our treatment, which is like a mindfulness-based emotion regulation treatment versus um, individualized supportive therapy mm. um, and definitely we saw improvements in both groups I think or hope that the improvements are going to be even greater in the ease group um, maybe in some surprising ways like I think we were really thinking about reactivity um, as as one of the primary targets but the groups might differ most in like dysphoria which mm. is the other area of the EDI I don't know for sure because mm. I'm still analyzing but um, but the, 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 the mindfulness intervention part, it's sort of like, um, almost like it's okay to have these emotions, just let it sit 
for a while, um, breathe through it, et cetera, instead of um, taking the next step, which might be latching out or something like that. It's, is that yeah, yes. And that's like still something we really are focusing on in our research. So like all, like the idea, like all emotions are okay. Yeah. Like experiencing emotion is like very, nor you know, normal. It's part of being a human. And, um, and I actually think we see more negative effects when people are trying to suppress those those emotions kind of like you see with things like masking where you're trying yeah. to like hold it in yeah. and so that's a big part of ease is like it's much more of an acceptance based you know model and like how do you have those strong emotions but like still like stay in control enough to meet your goals um, right it's not it's not like hey you shouldn't be feeling this way right it's okay to feel this way but how do we handle it right yeah hmm. okay and yeah. just do you have any idea when that paper might be coming out hopefully soon i think we're going to try and um publish it as soon as we have that data good okay hopefully this spring or summer okay um and we've been fortunate enough to just get a pcori award so we're moving on with that research to compare ease to um something called the unified protocol which is um kind of a standardized cognitive behavioral therapy um in in 10 community clinics here and in alabama with susan white do you so there's been a lot of a lot more people looking at uh, emotional dysregulation than before, or emotional yeah. dysregulation. Do you feel like you were at the forefront of something, or, or just you happened to catch the wave at the same time as everyone else, or, or what happened? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I was at the forefront. I don't know. I, I think, like, I think I was kind of, like, lucky that we started publishing on it. I don't know if we were lucky, or we inspired some people, or... Probably both, um, a little bit of both. Probably. Yeah, maybe a little of both. Um, but it's what for whatever the reason may be, it's like gratifying to see like how the field has changed and how many more people are focusing on emotion regulation and dysregulation. Sometimes I do like a little like Google search of how many abstracts have that in the um, or how many yeah how many papers have that in the abstract emotion regulation in autism and it's like skyrocketed since really? our first paper. So it, it's, it's something people are thinking about a lot more, which I think is, you know, in line with what a lot of you, you know, what you hear from a lot of um, autistic adults and priorities, because it's really right, you know, exactly. linked well with quality of life. And, right. So that's, there's a need that's clear. Yeah. Right? Um, it, but when you, like, I, when you stop and think about it, it just makes sense. Yeah. And just no one had really stopped to think about it, I think. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you're not regulated, like, you can't. Really, I mean, it interferes with everything, yeah. like with learning, with social interaction, with getting, you know, what you should out of other therapies or working, yeah. you know, school, everything. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Um, I know that you've also talked about something called the Autism Services Cliff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's talk about that. And this, I think, relates to, you know, your interest before of, like, dealing with teenagers and yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, I did start really focused on teenagers. I now might be even more focused on adults, but adults and teenagers for sure. Um, and our treatment trial is like kind of that transition to adulthood, especially. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also think, so there's a treatment cliff going into adulthood. We don't know as much about adulthood, yet we spend most of our time in adulthood um, versus childhood. And the other thing is like, I think societal expectations for adult behavior 
are very different from children. Um, so, you know, some of the impact of emotion dysregulation is different or how to navigate that mm. in the workplace is challenging. So we've, um, we mm. have really started to focus a lot on adulthood in our research program, um, including a new big like center grant focused exclusively on adults. But why, why don't we know as much about adults as we do children? You know, I feel like people sort of thought of autism as a childhood thing back in the day. Um, and I mean, I think that there was so much emphasis on early intervention as like the answer um, at the time um, that, that it wasn't gaining attention like it does now. Um, and then I think also with the expanding recognition of like the spectrum of autism now yeah. we're you know, fortunate that autistic adults are speaking up about their needs and interests and what they want um, to be focused on and including like just adulthood in general, but you know, helping to guide those research priorities more. And I think that's helped shift attention to adults. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this, the services cliff you're talking about is, well, it's partially attention, I guess is what you're saying, but you're saying. Yeah. I mean, well, at least when you're in school and if you do stay in school till you're 21, um, if you're in like, if you have an IEP and you can, um, then you at least have some structure and some way to have covered services. Yeah. And then like even navigating after that, like what's covered will really variable from state to state, but then pairing that with that, we haven't really focused on autism. So there aren't even that many like great programs out there to know like how to support adults and what they need. Um, it does feel like a cliff for many people. Um, like what to do yeah and the moment let's say that you do you're in school till you're 21 the moment you get out it's like well i've lost most of my support exactly yeah yeah um okay there's two things that i want to ask you before we're done okay the, the first one goes back to your time at the eastern state hospital yeah so knowing well first off you said it was the oldest one in the country yeah so in my mind i'm assuming that that was built in like this 1700s or something yeah, like that something like that yeah and i'm which would make it maybe a grim place like i'm imagining hard floors and grates on the windows yeah the stuff. original building it's it's not no longer in the original building but i think it's still there in williamsburg but yeah it was not a like it was more like well what we wouldn't want today for any psychiatric yeah. hospital more like an asylum you right. know like a negative right thing and when you think about the people that you saw in there. And if they had had any sort of access to, so they were charged with something, if they had been able to have help on emotional regulation, would they not have been in there? Have you thought about that? I haven't thought back about that in particular. Like how many of those crimes were like letting loose of emotion were, I don't know whether it's physical or I, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say for sure, but I'm sure it would reduce some of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of feel like, I mean, I obviously focus exclusively basically on autism, but I often feel like emotion dysregulation would be like, or emotion regulation, you know, intervention 
intervention <laughs> just basic like no one can see my air quotes yeah yeah <laughs> on a podcast right. in, yeah like not intervention but just like kind of like you have like you know like sex ed in school right like, if it should be like a i feel like maybe we would all be different if we all had you know yeah or, that it's, in, it's, or anger management right you right. like, you having these emotions what do you do with them how do you not bottle right. them up how do you not let them explode yeah, yeah. and not feel ashamed of them like yeah. be able to talk about them and yeah. Um, You've been studying, you got a grant, I think, to study suicidality in adults. Tell yeah. me about that. Yeah, we very excited. We just got a big Autism Center of Excellence grant focused all on adults and mental health broadly, but with a big suicide focus. Um, so we're going to do, like, I think the first big deep dive into suicidality. People have been talking about how it's much more prevalent, some stats up to seven times more common in autism. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to really try and understand what that's about. We're looking at kind of every angle and what's exciting about it is it's three linked projects. So we have tons of like clinical, well, the same 300 people will go through the whole study. So we're gonna have neuroimaging, physio with um, questionnaires during their daily life. Mm. Like so eight, they'll get eight surveys throughout the day, half of them prompted by changes in their like heart rate and Whoa. half are just random time points. Um, and then um, we'll also be following people over a year. So we'll be able to pull, pull all this together, and I'm excited that I think we'll probably uncover things that people didn't even think about, you know, related mm. to suicidality or positive outcomes, because we'll be looking at things like flourishing. And so they're wearing a, a, like a biosensor of some kind. Yeah. That's tied to their phone. That'll ping them that it's time to take the survey again. Yep. And that's gonna go on for a year. No, that no. part's two weeks, but oh, then we follow oh, them oh. up six months later and a year later, and they also do neuroimaging and a whole bunch of questionnaires, a new suicide questionnaire that we're developing um, that also covers like a wider range of possible contributors. I so. mean, I don't think I've heard of anybody doing that. I don't, well, anybody doing that in on suicide and autism? Yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I think this will be, this is exciting because I think most of the research out there, there's some good qualitative studies that are coming out or like some big online samples, but they're mostly like samples of like convenience. Um, so I think this will be a really exciting opportunity to take, you know, really see what we can figure out is related. Right. With um, some, what's protective. With biometrics like that. Yeah. That's, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, I'm excited to see what we find. So that's one year and then you'll start... When the year's done, you'll start analyzing the data. No, it's a five-year project, so um, it's it's one of the NIH Autism Centers of Excellence. So right. we're finishing like the year one ends this summer, and then we'll have four more years. Got it. But we're following people up for a year, and then if we're lucky, we can get more funding to follow them longer. Right. Um, and we'll also be able to look at things like brain age, and you know, really, just the um, opportunities are kind of endless with the data. And when you say adults. What's the age range? Oh, 18 to 65. Oh, oh okay. This. All yeah. of adulthood, basically. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and hopefully we get a good range. So. Smart. Okay, the other thing I want to yeah. ask, because you said that you came across this picture of this nine-year-old boy, and it said, do you want to help make a miracle? Yeah. And you said, that sounds like me. Yeah. Why does that sound like you? Well, I think it just sounded like my goal of wanting to, like, do something that gives back or something, you know, for other people was like one of my kind of career goals. Yeah. Have you 
thought about why that is because I don't know that everybody's like that. Every, some people are like I want to make a lot of money. I want to. I want to. You know, be a lawyer. I want to. But you're like I'd like to help people. Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> you've never. You've never thought about it. Well, I mean, I know that people all have you know different things that drive them. Yeah. I don't think too many people that go into like research are like going into it for the money, or right. they're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that, you know, interest in me came from. I mean, my mom was a teacher, so mm. maybe. Mm, maybe. Do you have siblings? I have a sister. You do? Just one yeah. sister, yeah. Okay. And over your shoulder, I see that you have the picture of three children in yeah. Pittsburgh Steelers gear. I'm assuming those are your kids. Yes, those are mine. I yep. have two teenagers and a nine-year-old. And they are diehard Pittsburgh people, it looks like. Yep, diehard. Mm. They're born here, so yeah, they're exactly. going to be bleeding black and gold forever, yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, that's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this. Okay. What is it about Pittsburgh? I wonder. I mean, I have family ties there. I spend a lot of time in Pittsburgh myself, and I love it there. But even I'm not fully certain why the locals are so fanatical about it. Anyway, thank you, Carla, for having me into your office for this interview. Okay, this podcast can also be found on spectrum.org, where there is a transcript of this talk. You can find and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use for podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever. If you have comments on this or anything we do at Spectrum, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Spectrum. Some of the information for the intro on Eastern State Hospital was taken from a promotional video put together by Colonial Williamsburg, and also from the thesis, A History of the Eastern State Hospital of Virginia Under the Galt Family, 1773 to 1862, by James Harding Siski, which he completed in 1949. Our theme song was written and performed by Chris Collinwood, and that's it. I will let Chris's music play us out. Are you in Pittsburgh visiting people? To be honest, um, I'm quite familiar. Well, yeah. moderately familiar. My, my dad grew up here. My, oh, right. my dad's side of the family's from Pittsburgh.